1787, a passerby asked Ben Franklin what form of government the United States would have. Franklin responded, a republic, if you can keep it. This podcast will tell the stories of the people who work for that goal. While exploring this nation's fundamental problems, our hope is to show you that, together, we can all keep the republic. I'm Srija. And I'm David. This is If We Can Keep It, a podcast for the Republic. Today, we're going to host a conversation between two students from Princeton University's Whig Cleosophic Society, our nation's oldest collegiate debate and political union. Our two speakers will address the topic of partisan gerrymandering, the practice of redrawing district maps to favor one party over the other. For a left-leaning view, we have Dylan Shapiro. Hi y'all, thanks for having me. I'm Dylan, I'm a sophomore here at Princeton from Atlanta, Georgia, which I'll go ahead and give everyone a fair warning. I'm gonna be using as an example quite a bit through this conversation. And I'm also co-president of the College Democrats here at Princeton. Thank you so much, Dylan. And for a right-leaning view, we have Jared Stone. Hi everybody, it's great to be on. Uh, I'm Jared Stone. I'm a freshman perspective politics major from Las Vegas. So another fairly swing state, uh, I'm active, uh, in the Cliosophic Society and with the Princeton Tory, and it's great to be here. And thank you, Jared. Our conversation will be divided into three sections, roughly 10 to 15 minutes each. First, we will discuss how gerrymandering has affected our nation's polarization, such as whether gerrymandering contributed to the Capitol riots. Second, we will discuss how gerrymandering has been handled in the legal system, such as in the Supreme Court's landmark gerrymandering cases. Lastly, we will discuss how gerrymandering is addressed in House Resolution 1, and whether these measures are warranted or even effective. For each section, the co-hosts will ask today's speakers questions and follow-ups. More than anything, we hope to create a meaningful, respectful, and constructive dialogue about one of the nation's most pressing topics. Join us as we discuss the ins and outs of partisan gerrymandering. Join us as we show how even when our views diverge, we can still come together for one crucial understanding. This is only a republic if you can keep it. And we intend to keep it. So thank you, Jared and Dylan, for joining us today. So to begin with uh, section one, uh, partisan gerrymandering and polarization. Partisan gerrymandering has been practiced by the left and right since its inception. However, over the past decade, there have been several claims that gerrymandering has reached unprecedented levels. Has this gerrymandering contributed to our nation's hyperpolarization? Let's discuss. So first, um, this question is addressed to Dylan. How would you define partisan gerrymandering and what, what is its place in our democracy? Yeah, so the way I define partisan gerrymandering is most simply it's the practice of drawing districts to increase the advantage of any given political party. And it can be done in a variety of ways. Some of the well-known and more extreme practices are drawing absurd district lines that snake around the state to keep incumbents in power, but it can also be done by splitting up hubs of one political party to dilute their voting power, packing those voters into uncompetitive districts so that they don't influence any of the other surrounding districts. And it becomes a problem in our democracy uh, because the only real way to achieve it that I can think of is using the powers of elected office and incumbency to increase your advantage in the next election. So it becomes a weaponization 
of incumbency and power. So that's where it fits in as a problem in our democracy, in my opinion. And how would you describe it, Jared? So how I'll describe it is pretty similarly to how Dylan described it. I think that besides sort of the more technical features, what it really amounts to is a sustained exertion of power uh, by one party over the other. And of course, it's something that's wielded by primarily the, the Democratic or the Republican Party. And the reason why I say it's a sustained exertion of power is, is because the districts that are drawn are oftentimes the ones that re-elect these state legislators uh, and the congressmen who are responsible for the next reapportionment a decade later and in the following decades. So really what it is, it is a sort of a buildup in the domino effect uh, of trying to look for certain features and try to draw maps based on those features, which include incumbency and partisan advantage, certain racial and demographic preferences. And really what it does is that it sort of amounts to a sort of sustained and continuous uh, unfairness perhaps in the way that legislators and congressmen represent their districts. And so I think that it has played a very long-standing role in our republic, given the fact that gerrymandered districts have been used for a very long time. I think that there is a sort of a new resurgence of backlash against gerrymandering, which I think exists on both sides to a certain degree. Uh, but I think that gerrymandering, especially going into the next decade reapportionment, is as important of an issue as ever before. And I think that it's really great that we're going to be having the opportunity to discuss it. So you, you touched a little bit upon this. Has gerrymandering truly reached unprecedented levels? If so, is one side, the left or the right, more at fault than the other? So I would say that gerrymandering has been used in recent years more so as a tool for political power than I think in some of the previous decades. And the reason why is because I think hyperpolarization is something that is becoming quite apparent in our country. We're seeing the way that urban areas are becoming even more solidified in Democrats' favor. We're seeing the way that rural areas across the country, not just in the Midwest or the South, but across the country, have realigned to support more Republican practices and politicians. And so as a result of this, the way that maps have been drawn and the way that districts have been conceived is very much a reflection of this stark binary that has been created in our country. So I would say that gerrymandering has become quite prevalent and quite bad in recent years. But I do want to offer a counter to that in that because of this hyperpolarization and these increased differences in the way that people see politics, uh, not all states can contend with fair redistricting practices in the sense that not all geographies can accommodate having completely fair districts. And so when we talk about gerrymandering, I think we need to be more nuanced in the way that we define it. I think we have to go on a case-by-case -case study because states operate differently. They have different demographic and geographic features. And so I think we need to be careful uh, about when we talk about gerrymandering you know, from state to state. Uh, and it's something that I'm looking forward to doing uh, throughout this podcast. Uh, you know, if you're talking about, for example, a state that's bad for Democrats for redistricting or for gerrymandering, something like Wisconsin or Minnesota, Wisconsin in particular has been uh, a target for Democrats in the way that state legislative and congressional districts have been drawn. And Texas on the inverse has become uh, quite precarious for Republicans. But I think that these types of scenarios where the geography cannot accommodate necessarily fair districting they have to be taken into account if we're going to be having an honest conversation about gerrymandering. Jared, I think you touch on an interesting point there that we've explored in previous episodes that um, the practice of gerrymandering itself, whether it comes to 
cracking or packing uh, leads to this hyperpolarization because people are often grouped with um, like-minded people or um, dispersed from the people who would um, hold potentially hold that dissent with them. And what you see from all these packed districts is that the most active base of the party tends to come to power because it's that... Um, kind of majority that's being brought out by those districts being packed. And uh, this is something that I would ask um, Dylan to um, touch upon. Um, does gerrymandering contribute to political polarization? How would you respond to um, Jared's answer there? So I actually think that while there are a lot of issues with gerrymandering that I think we'll get into as this podcast progresses, I don't know that the evidence bears out the idea of it being a primary cause of polarization in recent years. It might make polarization marginally worse, but from what I've read, the overwhelming consensus is that it's a marginal contribution at best. For example, Professor Nolan McCarty here at Princeton has done some research on it. Uh, and I think what's particularly compelling is that he found that, for example, if you graph members of Congress's nominate partisanship scores, uh, you see two very clear lines between the Democratic and Republican Party. You see a marginal tick up in each party in polarization in more uh, in more overwhelmingly gerrymandered or partisan districts, but there's still a much more massive gap between the two parties that's simply just not explained uh, by the polarization of the districts themselves. So there's something much more significant at work there, I think. Uh, now, I do think that the partisanship is likely coming from each party's base, getting, uh, getting a little more activist, although I think this has been a little bit asymmetrical. And what I mean by this is uh, I'd have to look at the... I saw a recent poll that suggested that 60% of Republicans see Democrats as enemies rather than adversaries, and 40% of Democrats see the same perspective. So while there's a bit of asymmetry there, both parties are clearly seeing each other in a different light than potentially they had before. That might be somewhere to look for where some of this polarization is coming from, in my opinion. Um, but you also saw with Georgia's runoffs, uh, where a state that's rapidly moving purple, uh, the Republican candidates ran way to what I perceive as the fringe of the right instead of moving towards the center, as you'd expect in a competitive race. Recognizing that those were Senate runoffs, I think it displays the opposite behavior of what you would expect for a competitive race and kind of exemplifies why I think there's something here at work aside from gerrymandered districts and districts that are easy for one party to win. Even in competitive races, you're seeing this polarization. So I think there's something else at work here. Like I said, there's a lot of issue with gerrymandering that we'll get into. I'm not sure this is where we should focus our energy. And that could be a very good point to make about how gerrymandering, if anything, is a marginal contributor at best to our nation's hyperpolarization. Where Jared, I, if I'm understanding correctly, was uh, putting some of the focus on for gerrymandering was to be that there are certain geographies in which gerrymandering, um, in which in which the practice of gerrymandering wouldn't almost uh, be effective because in these certain geographies, however which way you would slice it, the parties would come out in power uh, that we would expect. Dylan, would you agree with that assessment? Um, I mean, there might be cases where that plays out, but as we'll get into, I think there are some metrics that suggest um, when gerrymandering has gone awry. And this was actually something that came up in the Supreme Court case. We'll discuss Rucho versus Common Cause. I don't think really anybody would suggest that we're going to get rid of partisan gerrymandering or that there's never going to be some uneven distribution in how seats are doled out. 
It's a question of when does it become too much? And we can get into the specific metrics, I think, a little later on exactly how we might go about determining that. It's not that gerrymandering is, it's not that we can exactly even the scales in every case. It's a question of when does this go too far awry? And by going too far, um, you know, I've heard of cases um, such as uh, ones in Georgia where uh, a gerrymander becomes uh, what they call a dummy-mander, where um, the lines that are drawn become so hyper-competitive that it's no longer beneficial to the party that actually drew them, and it's easy for the lines to tip in the other party's favor. So is that what you're talking about, Dylan, or is there some more like semantic meaning behind that that I'm missing? Uh, what I'm more referring to is that I think you're like because you have to draw districts with various considerations in mind, not just partisanship concerns, but also making sure that communities of interest are protected, that it's protecting the one person, one vote standard. You are not always going to get perfectly competitive districts everywhere. Um, the question is, when does it become uncompetitive in a way that benefits the incumbent party uh, and is being used to protect the party that's drawing the district lines. Now, sometimes they're going to mess up, like you just mentioned, um, and they're not good at predicting 10 years out sometimes. Uh, but I think what I was referring to is more um, there. If you're allowing politicians to draw the lines and they have to follow certain criteria, you're not always going to protect competitiveness, even if you, it's your primary value in every given case. It's a question of when are you sacrificing competitiveness to protect the incumbents and protect political interests. Jared, would you agree with that framing of the of the question of gerrymandering? That it's not that partisan gerrymandering can be completely eliminated, but it's simply a question of when it's gone too far. I absolutely agree. And I think that any sort of metric, mathematical metric that's imposed upon gerrymandering in the sense that it tries to calculate how badly gerrymandered a state is or a district is, I think that it runs into some issues because I think there is a sort of an intrinsic qualitative aspect that needs to be associated with every gerrymandered district rather than one that is simply based on any sort of quantitative metric. So I think that it's hard to know whether a district instantaneously is gerrymandered or whether in that exact moment, only based on a certain number of criteria and certain amount of information at hand, is gerrymandered. I think what is known and what can be established as cause for uh, review by the Supreme Court and what can sort of go into legal precedent is when gerrymandering uh, overtly and ostensibly goes too far. Uh, and so when the pendulum swings too far one way, I think that uh, allows us to sort of delineate and demarcate where gerrymandering goes too far. But I, I agree in, in, the in the sense that um, you can't just look at one single moment uh, and use that to make any sort of claim that's going to pan out in all cases. I do want to add one additional point of clarification to what I was talking about. Um, when I said when I said that partisan gerrymandering couldn't be eliminated, maybe I should rephrase that a little bit. What I more mean is that we're never going to make every district as competitive as we might like. Uh, I do think that if we take the redistricting process out of the hands of political entities, you might eliminate the issue of partisan gerrymandering per se, but districts still aren't going to be perfectly competitive. I, all I was referring to there is you're going to be weighing a lot of different criteria. Um, but I do think, as we'll get into later, uh, politicians are weighing the criteria that are in a very different way than perhaps independent redistricting commissions might. 
Yes, and I think that kind of echoes um, something that Ruth Greenwood said previously on her podcast that um, identifying identifying a bad map is very simple. It's like getting Jack the Ripper out of your um, city, but figuring out what a good map is is very difficult, and oftentimes it can take um, these um, re- uh, district um, map drawers hours or even weeks and months to figure out like what a good map is and how accurately it um, represents the population and sometimes it's never uh, good enough but um, getting rid of the bad maps is so um, I think now that we're getting into um, the weeds of assessing how to um, figure out whether a a map is gerrymandered or or not we can um, transition to discussing the legality of partisan gerrymandering and um, so to ease us into that, in the 1900s, uh, a series of Supreme Court cases affirmed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and declared that racial gerrymandering um, was unconstitutional. However, the Supreme Court has not ruled similarly in regards to partisan gerrymandering. Should they? Let's discuss this. So in the 2019 case of Rucho v. Common Cause, which was referenced earlier here, the Supreme Court ruled in a 5-4 opinion that partisan gerrymandering is essentially, quote, a political question, and therefore not within the reach of the federal courts. On the other side of the issue, activists have argued that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional for decades. Which view has more merit? Jared, you can take first point on this. So I, I think that when we're looking in the weeds and this type of stuff, it can become a little bit difficult to try to discern uh, different arguments that we see as being uh, being more uh, more accurate in some cases. I think one of the ways in which partisan gerrymandering and just partisanship in de- general uh, is different from uh, ethnic or racial gerrymandering, if you will, is that there is a different sense of agency that is ascribed to partisan gerrymandering in that at least the veneer of partisan gerrymandering is that people have the ability to elect those who are, in most cases, in terms of states, responsible for gerrymandering, whereas ethnicity or race is is something that is perhaps more intrinsic and, and not controlled, even as several states have tried to institute forms of racial gerrymandering. Um, again, I'm of the opinion that gerrymandering should be seen on a case-by-case basis. And I think that gerrymandering as a whole is something that needs to be localized because, again, there are sort of more nuanced realities that exist that could perhaps inhibit federal efforts uh, to try to establish a firm basis from which gerrymandering or redistricting in general is achieved. Um, And so, uh, you know, I personally agree with with the outcome in this decision. given the fact that I do think that partisan gerrymandering is really a political question. And I think that what a political question entails, in theory at least, uh, is that it can be decided by voters. It can be decided by some sort of mandate that is given by the voters of the polity that allows the sway of legislation or the sway of gerrymandering to move in a certain direction. And so I, so I will always refrain uh, from having these types of situations litigated or dictated by federal courts. Uh, and I'm sure that we can have an interesting dialogue about this, but personally, uh, I, I do agree that it is a political question that should, uh, in most cases, stay out of the hands uh, of the federal court system. Dylan, how would you respond? Yeah, so I've always been very skeptical of the court's indication of the political question doctrine on questions like these. I think 
in general, and I'll save this for another conversation that the court's doctrine on this question is too broad, uh, because I think in a number of cases, it winds up setting up some ticking constitutional time bombs, because uh, it, it tends to be brought up on issues like these that are incredibly polarized, that really need a neutral arbiter. And this is a great example of those cases, uh, because I think there are a range of constitutional provisions here that partisan gerrymandering runs afoul of. Uh, the ones brought up in Rucho versus Common Cause included the 14th Amendment right to equal protection, First Amendment right to freedom of expression, uh, Article 1, Section 2, which says that the people choose their representatives, and the the uh, Elections Clause, which states that that states can set the time, place, and manner of their elections. And litigants in this case argued that uh, partisan gerrymandering goes beyond that authority. Uh, the crux of the court's reasoning, as I think we'll get back to later, uh, is because they felt like they couldn't find a clear, bright line test in this case. Uh, but as the dissent points out, I feel like that's a cop-out because there are clear constitutional violations here. And even the majority in this case notes that partisan gerrymandering is deeply undemocratic. And the court's decision to say we can't find a solution to this, but we recognize that it is undemocratic is, I think, uh, an, a contradiction that the court came down on the wrong end of. Uh, and it's because the courts are actually pretty used to dealing with murky issues like this. We use tests such as the totality of the circumstances tests on a wide range of legal issues and statutes and judicial tests all the time. So avoiding the substance and punting on this issue where we really need the judicial branch to resolve these legal disputes uh, is a cop-out. And I'll add that Justice Kagan's, Justice Kagan's dissent on this points out pretty clearly that the majority is dealing with some hypothetical edge cases where the district courts and appellate courts that actually overturned the partisan gerrymanders until the Supreme Court overruled them uh, were dealing with the just gross abuses of the process and the damning facts of the actual cases. The North Carolina case that was one of the cases that worked its way up through the courts, where you had representatives present maps drawn by Dr. Thomas Hofeller to explicitly maintain Republicans' 10-3 partisan advantage in the state, uh, because, quote, one of the representatives said, I don't believe it's possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and two Democrats. I'm not sure how that's not a clear violation of the Equal Protection Clause or of the First Amendment right to freedom of expression for the minority party here. And to be completely fair, Justice Kagan doesn't spare Democrats in Maryland either in these cases, uh, charging them with being just as egregious. So to close out here, Justice Kagan cites a combination of the writings of James Madison and the facts of the case to show that there's a pretty clear undermining of citizens' rights uh, to choose their elected representatives in these egregious gerrymanders, which undermines the core of what we know as Republican government. I think the Kagan dissent's most damning indictment of the majority here is that the majority doesn't even deny that gerrymandering undermines our democracy. It just thinks it's too difficult to solve. The political question doctrine should apply to cases where there's an open-ended question about legitimate issues that, as Jared said, can be resolved on the terrain of political struggle, including elections. But the crux of this issue is you can't resolve it through the electoral process because the party that's propagating the abuses here is propagating rules for the ballot box and they don't seem to share the belief in full democracy. So the majority in Rucho here is shirking its duty, and I think the dissent is clear-eyed about the undemocratic implications of that. Um, Dylan, you were, you were mentioning uh, earlier how uh, one of the central problems of uh, this case, Rucho v. Common Cause, was the, the search for a bright line, so to say. What do you mean by uh, a bright line? 
Yeah, so what I think the what the majority in this case was searching for and the Supreme Court has really been searching for for at least two decades, if not three in these partisan gerrymandering cases, is a test that can say this is a gerrymander that goes too far and this is not. And as we've kind of alluded to in various places, that's pretty hard because unlike, you know, racial or certain other types of gerrymandering with protected classes, people don't stick with their partisan identities. It's fairly, uh, it, those shift a lot. And sometimes things that look like a partisan gerrymander by one metric may have a justifiable reason for another test, whether it's, you know, keeping, commu keeping communities of interest together uh, or any other category that might actually be important to redistricting. Uh, but I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to HR1, which I think presents uh, what I might call a best worst option here, uh, because the reality isn't there, there really isn't a perfect test, but there are a number of tests that can at least give us an indicator of when something might be askew that we need to take a closer look at. Uh, one of those is the part, a partisan bias metric like the seats to votes curve. Uh, 538 has a really good article and uh, a graphic explaining this, looking at how many seats each party would have won in the U.S. House if they'd won 50% of the vote. Uh, I haven't seen an updated metric for 2020 yet, but in 2018, for example, Democrats would have only won about 45% of the seats in the United States House if they'd won 50% of the overall vote. This seems to suggest that something is off, especially because if you look at the graph, it's been getting worse over decades. Uh, or sorry, over the last decade, which suggests that there's a pr that there's something we need to take a closer look at here. Uh, and like I mentioned, this has been getting further and further away from Democrats over the past decade, uh, and even worse in specific states uh, at the state legislative level. I think North Carolina winds up being kind of our paradigmatic example for gerrymandering. Uh, Pennsylvania was also skewing further and further away until courts stepped in in 2018. Like I said, the reality is, isn't is that there's not one perfect test, but I believe things like that seats to votes curve, uh, things like the efficiency gap, which measure the number of wasted votes for each party, uh, or the mean to median difference, the difference between you know the average and the median district in a given state's votes, uh, are good examples of tests that should alert us to when there's a potential problem. And given the partisan interests of both parties, if these tests reliably indicate substantial deviation from partisan fairness in a given state, the state doing the redistricting needs to demonstrate why there isn't some, whether there's some compelling alternative reason for why these metrics are suggesting that there's an unfair advantage for the party in power. If there's a compelling other reason, fine. That's what the courts are set up to adjudicate. But if there's not a compelling other reason, there's then what we're seeing is a partisan gerrymander with no other justification other than maintaining the majority party's power. And that should be concerned. So I'll give another Georgia example, although even with the proposed reforms, because HR1 only applies to congressional elections, this wouldn't be solved. Uh, Planscore.org actually tracks those three metrics I mentioned. Um, and in Georgia, if Democrats had won 50% of the vote statewide, they'd only get 35.4% of the state house seats and state, and state senate seats. Uh, or sorry, they would get 35.4% of U.S. House seats and state Senate seats and 39.3% of state House seats, while wasting more than a million votes more in each of those cases than the Republican Party. This suggests a pretty reliable skew towards Republicans in the state that substantially disadvantages Democratic voters. So 
in my opinion, the state needs to provide a compelling reason for why that is not depriving voters of equal protection for the party that they're affiliating with, their right to express their affiliation with that party, uh, and any number of the other constitutional violations that the court doesn't seem to deny exist, but denies that there's a reasonable way to solve. What I'm suggesting here is that when all of these alarm bells are going off, the state, the onus needs to be on the state to prove there's not something wrong here. So, Jared, you had um, espoused a view earlier that um, the majority decision um, that the issue of partisan gerrymandering is a political question best left to the other branches of government um, was a correct one. Um, And I think one counterpoint that I've heard to um, the majority, I don't believe this is in um, uh, Justice Kagan's dissent, but um, one that's a a popular view among um, regular uh, political enthusiasts is that uh, there's a certain skew in the current government um, that's a result of partisan gerrymandering. Um, And uh, saying that it's a question uh, better left to the other political bodies um, is kind of overlooking the fact that um, they're that those political bodies are already kind of manipulated by the existing gerrymandering. So if it is a political question better left to those bodies, how would you mitigate the current state of uh, influence that gerrymandering poses upon them? Right. So when I talk about not wanting the judicial influence to overshadow the practices of gerrymandering to the extent that I think it has in certain cases, I think that we have to frame it within some already recurring themes within the conversation of gerrymandering. And that is that I take a more exclusionary stance. And what I mean by that is that just because I do not like one aspect does not mean that I am in favor of the other. Um, you, you know, just because it's really the sort of the same logic that I think is applied to the issue itself. And as was shown in the majority opinion and what what what, uh, what Chief Justice Roberts had to say uh, in Rousseau v. Common Cause, gerrymandering exists. Uh, it, there's no doubt that that it poses issues to certain core tenets, uh, including equal protection in the 14th Amendment and free speech, as shown in the First Amendment. But it's hard to demarcate the extent to which it has reaped harm upon our society. So it is, a, it is an issue that exists. Uh, and so we can say that sort of reactively, but being proactive about how we're able to mitigate it, that is part of the issue. And so I bring up my issues and my reservations with the judicial system and their influence on gerrymandering. It is not a free pass necessarily to say that this that the state legislatures and that Congress uh, should wield all the ability to pursue gerrymandering and to carve out districts uh, into perpetuity. Because I see that there are some issues in the fact that when gerrymandering allows for a lot of these members of state legislatures and Congress to exist in their form in the first place, that they can often exert bias in the way that they see these issues. However, I am just not convinced that other forms of government uh, have the best interests in mind when they are dealing with forms of gerrymandering. Uh, And not only other forms of government, but other institutions that have historically been responsible for the creation of either gerrymandered or fair maps. Uh, And as I think we'll talk about a little bit later, with things such as independent redistricting commissions, uh, I think those have, in some cases, been riddled with controversy uh, admired in some scandal because they have, resu- they have resulted in some outcomes that have not been favorable to a certain political party, even as they are nominally known as independent redistricting commissions. So my reservations with the judicial system's handling of gerrymandering 
it does not preclude me from the recognition that having it bestowed into the hands of state legislatures and congressmen would not create any issues. However, I think that my take is more exclusionary and I'm just looking at some of the ways in which it does not work. That does not necessarily mean that the, the inverse of that is the right system. But I think that, again, the whole conversation of gerrymandering is sort of confined within the, the, the context that there are some practices that do not work. And yet that does not negate or that does not define the practices that do work, even if they are just happen to be the opposing ones. Uh, one of the things that, as I understand it, uh, that, that Dylan said uh, was that um, one of the sticking points of Rucho v. Common Cause, this case that we've been talking about, was the lack of a, of a bright line, of a manageable standard, of a test. And uh, whether or not this is uh, gerrymandering is a political question left to the courts or should not be left to the courts. I think that, uh, that talking about these manageable standards, these bright lines, can be a fruitful conversation. Uh, do you think that these uh, bright line tests, the tests that um, Dylan has alluded to, or that the tests that you know, the Chief Justice himself at one point called sociological gobbledygook, um, how do you think that these tests fit into this larger conversation on determining bad gerrymandering? So I think that certain tests have been put in practice. Uh, I have an opinion that's actually quite similar to Dylan's in that they establish a standard for being able to review some of the practices that have perhaps not worked. And yet they're not orthodoxy. They should not be seen as an end-all be-all to the way that we should practice. But if there is a clear sort of, if there's a clear um, path that is being taken, or if there is a clear uh, demonstration shown by one of these tests that, that shows a serious inadequacy or gap between the way in which a state or a district votes and the way that it represent the way that it is represented, I think that is cause for us to reassess these types of things. Uh, I'm not I'm not confined or I'm not I'm not exactly convinced about the efficacy of any single test, whether it be something like the efficiency gap or the the lopsided average test, which both look at different aspects of gerrymandering. Uh, and yet, you will find, as I have said, that I am more interested in the more in the more qualitative aspects of gerrymandering. Uh, and I think these are things that cannot be are can be confined or defined by any explicit test that has uh, been practiced in recent years. And yet I do think that the test can provide a sort of uh, first standard for us to be able to look at the way that our districts work, the way that they are shaped, and just how different they are from the realities that actually exist in the way that people vote in a certain district or state. So you mentioned um looking beyond the quantitative and looking to the qualitative. And um, as has been referenced in this conversation, one of the qualitative uh, measures that can be uh, that can be considered when looking at uh, redistricting or gerrymandering are things called uh, communities of interests. So without federal review, states are left to address redistricting and partisan gerrymandering on their own. Many states from California to Alabama have redistricting laws that mandates that, quote, communities of interest, that's what they're called, be considered when drawing these districts. Uh, a community of interest is a geographic area with, quote, shared interests. And that can vary state to states. Just for an example, some shared interests might be socioeconomic status, race, education, employment, health, and uh, urban character. So how does partisan gerrymandering affect these communities of interests 
and our communities of interest, the kind of qualitative uh, things you had in mind, Jared, when you were looking at this issue? Right. So I, I am very interested in communities of interest because I think that there are a variety of metrics or factors that can be considered. And there's also a bit of a gray area when we're talking about communities of interest because it's hard for us or for people who are looking at sort of a 20,000 foot view at the issues to be able to discern specific groups uh, based on status or race or education uh, from which they can be able to conceive certain districts. But I think that really the question that we should be asking is how do communities of interest inform partisan gerrymandering? One of the interesting things that I do believe is that communities of interest allow for certain false conceptions of what, what gerrymandering consists of. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's a district in Illinois, the fourth congressional district that is shaped like earmuffs, uh, is basically a district uh, that has been formed out of the necessity uh, of community of interest representation. Uh, it is a district that takes in two majority Hispanic neighborhoods, uh, ones that are bisected by a neighborhood called Oak Park. And that is the reason why you need to have this sort of line that swoops around this neighborhood, looking like earmuffs to connect these two, um, these two communities, which share similar interests, given the fact that they both constitute a similar racial profile or demographic. Um, and this, this district in particular has been interesting because it has been uh, it has sort of been the site of a lot of disagreement about what gerrymandering is and how it looks. And this is a district that will show up probably in most textbooks and most presentations about what the prototypical gerrymander district looks like. And yet, given the fact that it, it was conceived and it was created to protect the interests of Hispanic residents in two separate neighborhoods of Chicago, whose interests would have otherwise been diluted by other majority Democratic, but not majority Hispanic districts, this conceivably gerrymandered and yet not really gerrymandered district uh, exists to do so. Uh, and so I think that what communities of interest really do is that they allow us to look, uh, to look with magnifying glass and to see that not all weirdly shaped districts and not all districts that sort of contour cities or neighborhoods or regions kind of in a weird way, not all of them constitute a form of egregious partisan or racial gerrymandering as we might be inclined to suggest otherwise. Thank you so much for bringing up uh, Illinois District 4, Jared. I feel like we can't really have a conversation about communities of interest without talking about the Earmuffs District. Um, it's a wonderful uh, uh, district to have, honestly. Um, and I think on this point of, uh, and I, I like that you brought up the point that you can't look at um, communities uh, 20,000 feet away and expect to draw maps that are fair and representative of the population. And um, that's very true, I think, uh, in my perspective. And when it comes to drawing these maps, it's very, that's why it's very important to involve people on the ground and to have these communities uh, map out their own communities. Um, and I think that brings us to an interesting point um, regarding independent redistricting commissions and um, how effective they tend to be. So um, I'll address this question to Dylan. Um, so are independent redistricting commissions effective? And if even if they are, is it the role for Congress to mandate states to adopt them? Yeah, so addressing the first point, I think it really depends on how the commissions are set up. Uh, probably also what we what depends on what we mean by effective, but in this case, I'll go with you know generally increasing competition as a pretty good metric for that. 
the Brennan Center at NYU Law School found that commissions that don't require input from the minority political bloc or use single person as a tiebreaker and commissions that are substantially selected by politicians tend to be seen far more negatively by all stakeholders involved than commissions that don't have these features. And this addresses some of, I think Jared raised this earlier about potential political influences on independent redistricting commissions. The more we can sideline the folks that have been doing the partisan gerrymandering over the past several decades from influencing these commissions, the more effective they're likely to be. And also that part I mentioned about avoiding the single tiebreaker, there have been a few commissions out there where a single ostensibly nonpartisan individual is there to break the tie. But what winds up happening there is this individual is forced to pick between a block of Democrats and a block of Republicans. The more effective commissions in existence, from my understanding, have required at least some input from the minority party that's involved in the commission. And satisfaction from commissioners, from constituents, even from politicians has been much higher with commissions that are designed in this way. So I think it really does matter what we're talking about when we're talking about these commissions. Uh, but that being said, evidence from two existing commissions in Arizona and California, both do seem to suggest that those commissions increase competitiveness. With Arizona's staying, with, uh, to give some context, Arizona during the 1990s was under a federal court order because its districts were too gerrymandered. Uh, so those naturally were a little less gerrymandered when the court drew them instead of politicians. But what they found after adopting the Independent Redistricting Commission for the next decade, they stayed about as competitive as under a federal court order, which is a pretty decent benchmark and stayed more competitive than the nation as a whole. And over in California, you saw a spike in toss-up races as soon as the Independent Redistricting Commission was adopted. So there does seem to be at least some preliminary evidence that these commissions, when done properly, can increase competitiveness. Now to that second point about whether there's a role for Congress to mandate them, as far as constitutionality, this seems pretty unambiguously within Article 1, Section 4, which is the Elections Clause of the Constitution, which states that the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislatures thereof, but the Congress may at any time, by law, make or alter such regulations. And that's pretty unambiguous. The only semi-serious argument that I've seen against, uh, for example, H.R. 1's commissions on constitutional grounds is under what's known as the anti-commandeering doctrine, where Congress is not allowed, in most cases, as I'll get into, I don't think it applies in this case, is not allowed to impose mandates on the states for how they're supposed to legislate. But the Harvard Law Review has a pretty great article from, I believe, last March that makes it abundantly clear that this is really not applicable in this case, because the Elections Clause is a case where the framers unambiguously give Congress to make and alter state laws. Courts have also upheld things like the National Voter Registration Act, which requires states to legislate and implement uh, laws and regulations to provide voter registration forms, which is another mandate to the states on the elections that follows a pretty similar trend here. Uh, and courts have upheld that in the past. Now, I'll provide really begrudgingly a but here uh, that the arguments for the anti-commandeering doctrine do seem to be based on what I believe is kind of the tortured original public meaning interpretation that the current Supreme Court seems to be very fond of. So I'm not saying that the redistricting commissions are bulletproof in front of this particular composition of the Supreme Court, but on the, on the actual constitutional grounds as I and a number of election law experts, their, their opinion is probably a little more important than mine on this, uh, but as I and a number of election law experts uh, see this, uh, independent redistricting commissions are perfectly legitimate and perfectly consistent with past Supreme Court and appellate court precedent on this issue. 
Uh, and to the last point on this issue, uh, I want to briefly touch on an argument that pops up uh, from groups like the Heritage Foundation and other uh, groups further on the right about some fear-mongering about quote-unquote nationalizing elections. I would really encourage folks to stay away from that line of argument because of where it comes from in our history. Uh, that rhetoric goes back to the post-reconstruction period, and I think our failure to pass the legislation that that fear-mongering was about, which would have protected Black voting rights uh, in the South as Jim Crow was being implemented, that was a national tragedy. So you'll have to forgive me if I don't put a whole lot of weight on that argument. I think we should be a lot more ashamed than we are that that argument is coming back up into the national discourse. If you want to make a legitimate argument on the anti-commandeering doctrine, go ahead. That's semi-serious. Uh, nationalizing elections is fear-mongering, and it has a really dark history in our country. Jared, how would you respond? So my response is not going to be as, as intensive in the constitutionality of it, because uh, I agree that there isn't any sort of constitutional provision that would prohibit or inhibit uh, an independent redistricting commission structure for being enacted in, in the country. On the other hand, I do think that the practice of having independent redistricting commissions has proven not only ineffective, but also very skewed uh, in the direction of a single party, despite the fact that by nature of being an independent redistricting commission, it is supposed to give roughly equal weight to the needs of people on all sides of the political spectrum. Uh, and so, um, you know, again, dismissing the constitutionality of it, I would like to look into the example of Arizona that Dylan brought up. Uh, as a state that did enact an independent redistricting commission. Now, as you mentioned, Arizona was prone to several gerrymandering practices. If you look at previous iterations of congressional maps in Arizona, uh, you'll notice that in the northern region of the state, there's a very weird border that separates two congressional districts, and there's sort of a squiggly line that contours uh, to basically what amounts to a different uh, Native American reservations and, and, and tribal areas that wanted to be separated into two congressional districts. And so if, if you're going to be looking at previous iterations of congressional maps there, um, if they appear gerrymandered, I think that there has to be some sort of context provided to that. Uh, you know, again, the Navajo and Hopi tribes that both inhabit areas that are near each other uh, in northern Arizona, they wanted to be separated into two congressional districts. And so the reason why uh, the Western congressional district sort of swoops in and takes in one of those tribal areas. Uh, it's not exactly uh, tantamount to gerrymandering as it is more so to tribal interests. But besides that, um, you know, Arizona now has a map that was procured by an independent redistricting commission. Uh, and Arizona structure uh, does have uh, a two to two to one format in that you have two Republicans on it, two Democrats on it, and then one quote unquote swing voter uh, who is able to allow either side to pass in their objectives. Uh, the swing voter in the case of the last redistricting cycle happened to be a woman by the name of uh, Colleen Mathis. And she received a lot of scrutiny for the way in which she, she, people perceived her as siding with one side. Um, now looking at the maps themselves that were, that were created by the Independent Redistricting Commission, they, they've now amounted to a 5-4 map for Democrats. And this is in Arizona, which is conceivably a toss-up state, but is now becoming a little more marginally democratic. Joe Biden won it by uh, less than 0.5%. Uh, and yet it, it has shifted very much to the left in recent years, especially in the past decade. Um, now, I don't see competitiveness as being a gold standard uh, for having fair maps. And so while Arizona and their districts did technically rank high in terms of competitiveness, especially when you had the second district to represent 
the quote unquote median district in the state uh, to essentially reflect the fact that Arizona was an almost toss up state. The second district uh, inhabits some of the eastern suburbs of Tucson and Pima County and goes into goes into Cochise County uh, and was seen as sort of the quintessential swing district insofar as it reflected the nature of Arizona as being a swing state. However, what we noticed with that particular district is that it voted very much so to the left of the state, of the state as a whole. Even today, uh, when Joe Biden won the district by over 10%, uh, he only won the state of Arizona by less than 1%. And so I think that using, you know, the fact that the Independent Redistricting Commission used that particular district representing the quote unquote median district was not a fair measure to place given the fact that even in 2012, when Republicans, for instance, won the popular vote in the state by nine points, a five to four Democratic majority resulted with the incumbent Democrat Ron Barber in the in the form of the district that exists today, um, winning another term as a Democrat, despite the fact that um, Republicans won the state lopsidedly in the popular vote. And one more issue that I see in terms of the actual creation of the districts from the Independent Redistricting Commission is the newest district that resulted from it, which was the ninth district, which was formerly represented by now Senator Kirsten Sinema. And that was also seen to be as very much a, a toss up, perhaps leaning Democratic district. Now, if that were seen as another sort of median district to represent the fact that Arizona was a sort of swing state back then, it would not account for the fact that that's, that, that seat is no longer competitive at all. It is now a solidly Democratic seat. Uh, even though it used to vote marginally to the left of the state, it is now completely out of reach for Republicans. And in fact, as Republicans look to hopefully have favorable maps in 2021 and beyond, um, that district is not going to be favorable to them in any sort of form. And so really looking at those sort of uh, effects of the Independent Redistricting Commission, I see that as being an issue when you have an Independent Redistricting Commission resulting in outcomes that are completely favorable to Democrats. Now, I'm sure that there are people out there who disagree with my assertion that the Arizona map constitutes a sort of democratic advantaged map, but I don't think that the Independent Redistricting Commission in that case did a great job in representing what I think are the most important metrics to having fair maps. Competitiveness was important there, but frankly, the districts in their current form are no longer really competitive, except for some Republican districts that are now trending Democratic. Um, and so I use that example to, to show a point that when you have states like Arizona and California with conceivably independent redistricting commissions, they oftentimes can result in maps and in drawings that are not necessarily reflective of their independent nature and that ignore the fact that um, ignore the fact that independent redistricting commissions are responsible for weighing the perspectives of people who are conceivably on both sides of the aisle. So that in particular is one that I find to be quite egregious. Uh, and I think in some ways it does inform my conception of uh, what I see as the faults of having an independent redistricting commission. Yeah, so I just wanted to suggest that like, I'm not intimately familiar with all the details of the Arizona case, um, but I think the metric we should use when we're looking at like, is it good or is it not good to implement independent redistricting commissions? Shouldn't be, do they achieve the fairest map possible in any given universe, it's do they improve over the status quo? And I think the answer there, at least from what I can tell, is unambiguously yes. Uh, because looking at, uh, for example, I think this was when the mic was having a little difficulties on your end, Jared, but I was talking about the case in my home state, Georgia, where if Democrats win 50% of the vote, they win 35% of the House seats uh, and 35% of the state Senate seats and about 39% of the state of the uh, state House seats. 
I don't know that we would get to a perfectly fair map if we're implementing an independent redistricting commission, but I'm guessing we'd get a lot closer to something that looks like Arizona, where the partisan bias is about 1% in the wrong direction, the mean median is about 1% in the other. Um, and I'm sure there are issues with that. Um, that. And we can come back in two, five, 10 years and say, okay, what's the best independent redistricting commission model and tweak it. But I think the existing model of letting state legislatures just go wild uh, is pretty manifestly worse than the tweaks we might need to make to the independent redistricting commissions down the line. Jared, do you have any any final thoughts on responding to Dylan's answer there? Because we don't want to take up too much of your time here. And we also realize that there have been some technical difficulties. So if there are any closings that you guys might want to, to offer, we'll we'll head right into our, our final question. Sure, uh, I'll just offer a little bit of a response. You know, I, I agree that there are certainly, that I, I think independent redistricting commissions in theory offer a better alternative to state legislatures like those in Georgia, completely tearing apart maps and creating districts that are ostensibly unfair to a certain party. Um, but again, I think that there isn't a perfect solution to gerrymandering and there isn't a perfect solution uh, and the perfect way to address some of the most glaring issues that we find in our current systems. And so while I may object to the to the the prospect of having independent redistricting commissions, which I personally see as not being not being fair uh, in terms of reflecting the statewide aggregate. You know, my my standards for gerrymandering and my standards for fair maps just happen to be different from what a lot of people hold. And I don't see competitiveness as being again the gold standard uh, of fair maps. I think that they should try at least informed to represent the statewide aggregate. Uh, and so I think that that's a conversation that we have to recognize is based upon fundamental disagreements, not, not on whether gerrymandering is good or bad, but just based on what sort of metrics and what sort of, uh, what sort of factors we want to factor in to gerrymandering and, and fair districting in the first place. I think that's an interesting point that you bring up, Jared. Um, so. Let, let me um, know if I uh, understood this correctly, but um, the view that you're espousing essentially is that because the state legislat legislatures are a democratic um, political body that represents the um, actual constituency of the state, that they should continue to hold the power to draw the maps um, rather than an independent redistricting commission, which would be appointed um, not so democratically? Um, I Listen, I, I'm, I don't think that it's a perfect solution. I don't even know if it is a solution. What I am saying is that we have to look at the viable alternatives, in my opinion, to having an independent redistricting commission. And given some of the issues that I see, for example, in Arizona, right? Because I was talking about Arizona. You know, I, I personally think that a, a state legislature you know, mandated drawing of the maps in Arizona would, in that case, better reflect uh, the citizenship and the political makeup of the state than what the independent redistricting commission had conceived there. But I will concede again that it is really a state state by state basis. I'm sure that in the case of Georgia, an independent redistricting commission would create maps that are more reflective of the fact that it is a toss-up state because the state legislature drew maps that are so egregiously favorable to one side of the political aisle that really any sort of change there, I think constitutes a sort of improvement. So I'm not saying that it's a sort of universal standard that should be applicable in all scenarios. What I'm saying is I think in the case that I was talking about, 
there are certainly alternatives that should be implemented, uh, you know, in in opposition to something like an independent redistricting commission. All right. Thank you for that uh, clarification. Yeah. And um, with that, um, we are cutting close on time, so um, we'll wrap it up with a final question that we ask all of our guests. And it's a very simple question, but at the same time, very difficult, we feel like. Um, and uh, we'll uh, address this to Dylan first, and uh, Jared, you can respond. Um, what does democracy mean to you? Yeah, so I tend to pull from the philosophical tradition of uh, Elizabeth Anderson, who's up at University of Michigan, and the idea of democratic equality, which is the idea that we should all uh, there are certain obligations we have to each other, and in turn, there are certain obligations other people demand of us. And in order to achieve that, we all need to have an equal voice in the institutions that govern our society. It's the only way you get a legitimate government where the action that the government ultimately takes, everyone feels that they had not just a formal voice in the process, but either A, they were actually consulted about the substance, or they have confidence that the reason that they didn't get their way isn't because they've been categorically excluded from the decision-making process, uh, but that their fellow citizens disagreed and uh, they lost the debate in that instance, but they're not guaranteed to lose it in every future instance. Uh, really what it comes down to in kind of a less academic sense is that both your government and your fellow citizens have to respect your dignity as a citizen, and in turn, you're obligated to respect theirs. And representative government is what follows from that premise. Uh, just to close out the gerrymandering conversation, I think gerrymandering undermines that pretty much every criterion I just laid out. It distorts the relative weight of our voices, removes incentive for the government to consider substantively the voices of all their citizens. And it can reasonably make Americans feel like they've been categorically excluded from choosing who represents them just because of their beliefs. So ending gerrymandering, as I think we've laid out, isn't going to complete the work of establishing real substantive democracy in this country, but democracy isn't going to happen without ending this obscene practice. And my opinion of democracy is that it should be seen as an adjective rather than a noun. I, I think that the idea of having a democratic country with democratic institutions is something that we are perpetually aspiring to. Uh, I think it's something that compels us to try to make our institutions more sound, more equitable, uh, and more accessible to people of all backgrounds and of all types. Uh, and so I think that democracy is really more so a goal and an aspiration than anything. Um, I also recognize that, you know, technically our country is not a democracy and it's something that I actually believe in quite strongly. I believe that we do thrive as a democratic republic, that one that bears essential democratic institutions, but which also bears institutions, which I think hearken, um, which I think hearken to a sort of philosophical tradition that was cultivated uh, in Europe that understands the importance of the integrity of institutions. I think those institutions need to be changed uh, if we see glaring issues that cause them to be inaccessible to certain individuals, to certain people with certain backgrounds or races or identities or political affiliations. And so I think that the issue of gerrymandering falls into that category. Seeing gerrymandering as an institution that needs to be amended uh, in order that people can obtain greater voice in their government, I think that has to be a goal that we aspire to. Uh, and really sort of going back to what I was talking about before, I think that gerrymandering needs to not be seen as some sort of national issue, but needs to be really localized and targeted on a state-by-state -state basis because gerrymandering manifests itself in a variety of forms. And I think that until we recognize that gerrymandering is not just a single-headed creature, I think that we 
aren't going to be destined to have to live with gerrymandering for the foreseeable future. So I also hope that gerrymandering is something that becomes less prevalent in our society. I hope that we are able to institute practices that allow our voices to be raised and allow our voices to be heard. Uh, and I think that that will result in having a society that is democratic and that does reflect our truest and our best values uh, as a people and as Americans. Thank you both so much for, for joining us today. We, we began in a place in our conversation where we agreed that gerrymandering was becoming uh, an issue in this nation. And as the conversation progressed, we began to diverge on how that can be solved, where it can be solved, and in some instances, uh, when almost. Is it now? Is it in 10 years? Is it something that will continue in perpetuity? Or is it something that must be handled uh, in every instance? Uh, I really appreciate you both taking the time to come and speak to us today. And we really thank you for your insightful answers. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks to you, listener, for joining us today. This has been If We Can Keep It, a podcast for the Republic. See you next time. <laughs>